Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It's May 4th, 2022, and we're ready to begin our worship service this evening. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time we have this evening. We thank you for life, health, and strength. We also um, are so grateful as you've given us the opportunity to discover Romans uh, chapter 11 and the previous chapters that we've already covered. It's been a journey and we thank you for your spirit teaching us. So we also, Father, pray for those in our congregation. We pray for a word of truth at large, wherever they may be. We pray for uh, the church wherever in this world, whatever nation they belong to in this world, and that unity that you speak of in Ephesians 4 will be, we pray that that will be our experience as well. All this we ask in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. Amen. All right, so here we are in Romans chapter 11, and our that is our normal course of study, and we are in verses 4 and 5 today. So let's see how far we get. Uh, but we're going to be aggressive and try to tackle two verses. We'll see how it goes. But I feel confident. We've, it, it is a lot. If It depends on how much we want to read in the Old Testament. So we'll take our time. Uh, I don't see there's any reason for us to rush things. So I'm just happy to be able to make sure everybody comes to a, an understanding of what we're, is in front of us. But to note, the website's out there, wordistruth.com. And also, we have, uh, if you go on the website, uh, you have uh, the folder that is archives. So in the archives section, you can go back to... 2006 so there's a lot of information there as well as documents so take some time to see what what's happening on wordistruth.com so with that uh just to note we if if as time permits we will certainly have opportunity to uh, do a sh some q a hopefully um and that's the that will be at the end, and I'm hoping we're going to leave some time for that. Even if maybe we will leave some time for that, just in case, no matter what we're doing, we'll make sure. All right, so let's get into it. So, Romans 11, 4 and 5, you should have notes. It says, And what God, what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God had an answer to Elijah's sky-falling predicament. He also had a sufficient answer to the defiant Jews of the first century. This is not to say that things didn't look bad in Elijah's day. On the contrary, we can identify with this frustration, especially when we when our expectations are not met. Like the disciples on that sinking boat in the storm, 
we must learn that God will fulfill his purposes. Far too often, we limit God by our ignorance or lack of trust in his plan. God's answer to Elijah will continue to be his answer to us and to those who come after us. Quote, By faith Abraham, when, he was test, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God said, God had said to him, quote, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That's found in Hebrews 11, 17 and 18. And I thought of this passage as I am opening this Bible study to, because I think it speaks a lot about what Abraham's objectives were and where his faith was when he sacrificed Isaac. Remember, Isaac was the promised son. I mean, it was such a long time coming that Isaac was finally able to be born. And yet he had to sacrifice him. How does this work? How is Abraham going to have all this offspring that God is referring to? I mean, it was, it talk about a test, that's a test. And Abraham was put in that situation. What did he do? He performed. He had trust in the Father's plan. And that's what we're called upon to do. That's what the Jews of the first century needed to do. Even if they didn't understand everything, even if they didn't know they just had to trust God. And uh, this is hopefully what we can begin to see out of this as well. So we're going to get into this. We have quite a, just a few phrases that we want to focus on. The first phrase, and what was God's answer to him, is the first phrase. And uh, so here's, here's some, just a few points. God always has an answer to anything that may happen in time. Don't forget, he has a plan. So when I, I'm going to 1 Corinthians 2.7 because it's important for us as well as them and, and the day in which they live. This is something that crosses what we might call dispensational boundaries, that God is faithful. <laughs> he, he can be trusted and he has a plan. So 1 Corinthians 2.7 says, No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that, that God destined for our glory before time began. So when we think about this scripture, before time began, something about us is mentioned in the same sentence as the phrase before time began that is amazing to think about and what is is something that was hidden and it's God's wisdom and it says it was destined or it was for us it was even though this wisdom happened before t time and time is the creation of the universe which we should note uh, this wisdom was there, which is to say there was a plan. And further, it is to say that God, in his plan, 
had a definite purpose for us in, in all of this. A definite purpose. I, I, think about it. We were mentioned before the creation of all things. And not just as to say that there are going to be people created, but he chose us in him before the creation of the world, before the time began. So here is wisdom, God's wisdom for us, and it's for our glory. So which is to say that while we're here on the ground, we would need to depend on this information to survive, or at least to grow in grace, to grow up in Christ. It is wisdom. So wisdom is important for us in this regard. So it's just to say, look, always remember, whatever happens in your life, whatever happened in Elijah's life, whatever happened in the Jews of the first century's life, you were not between a rock and a hard place. God has a plan. Right? That, it, and not only does this plan uh, that he has, uh, is it significant from the standpoint of it involves us and it will be seen to the end. But this plan is unique because God has the foresight to see everything already. So he didn't plan with the thought that I hope everything goes right. I hope that people make the right decisions or, or that uh, history uh, does go in this direction. He already knows what direction. He already sees the whole thing. It is before him. As we could easily say, the future is as perspicuous as the past. There is no uh, blind spots for God. There is no guessing when it comes to what's going to happen. He, he knows. So when we think about that, we should always look to God and know, even if we're in tight situations or situations that seem impossible, we should know that wisdom destined for our glory, even before all of this was put into play. So that is unique to think about. I, this 1 Corinthians 2 7 passage, actually, it's not just that verse, but it's the whole chapter that deal, it deals with the deep things of God. As it says in uh, verse, I believe it's 11, right? For who knows, uh, where is it, 10? These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. And we know the Spirit came at Pentecost with the New Age. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So God is aware of all of this. He chose us even before the creation of the world. So these are not secondary things that happen. Well, since that happened, God says, well, I'm going to do this. No, no. He, all of this is part of what he has uh, called foreknowledge. And this is the theological term and where he not only uh, sees us in his plan, it is his will to insert us into his plan. It is not just, oh, we happen to be here. He inserted us to be in the place we are right now. So let's go on. The second point here is B, the Jews who questioned and threatened God to stay the course with Israel assumed God would bend to their protests. 
but they were wrong. So, you know, in our study of Romans chapter 9, really the context of this just doesn't quit because this is information that we have to help us understand the transition of uh, the dispensation that was Israel and the dispensation that we are in now, which is the dispensation of grace or the church where, where God is calling out many sons in the glory. So it is um, definitely mentioned here, and I want to read Romans 9.21 just to get some context here. And the, and the Jews, the early, this is the whole crux of the matter here in Rome. Not the whole crux, but a large part of all of these chapters deals with this thought that Israel objected to the church. How are you going to say they're foreknown? How are you going to say they're predestined? How are you going to say they're called or elected? That's information that pertains to Israel. You can't just switch it to the church. Well... This is what God is doing. He, he made a change, and Israel just could not accept it. Anyway, Romans 9.21 says, Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? So, <laughs> which is quite... An interesting point. I mean, if you read the scriptures around it, you will also see that God is, he's demonstrating that he has the right. And he's, he's putting this in such a way as to say, yeah, I have the right. And who are you to question me about uh, what I do with my creation? This is God saying this. Well, I guess that goes, hails back to the previous verse. But who are you, verse 20, that is. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? So who is the architect of the creation of all things? You have to say God. But when you think about it, you say, well, okay, God, you're the architect. Well, what's the plan? What did you create all things for in the first place? And then you come to this understanding of what God wanted out of creation. And God is saying, I have a right to be able to do that. And if I wanted to hide the true purpose of for all things because I wasn't ready to reveal it, I have the right to even do that. So Israel was, as we might say, barking up the wrong tree here. They didn't have the right to even question God. But as gracious as God is, he allowed Israel to not only question him, but he provides an answer, but he lets him know. You really didn't have a right to ask that question. You didn't. But I'm going to be gracious enough to answer you anyhow. So this is what you find in those verses. And we covered this in Romans 9. And I hope that, um, you know, if you don't have the notes, we can make them available to you. The whole Romans 9. Anyway, so in point C, this is this comes from the notes. And this is um, the introduction, part of the introduction that I, I wrote in Romans chapter nine on this particular verse twenty one. It said, "I said, is it? It is quite interesting to be able to question our existence. How 
have we done this? How have we questioned our own existence? When we question our Creator and disagree with His eternal purpose, we are literally questioning the ground on which we stand. And so, as I think about some of that, you know, all of this, all of these thoughts came from the context of Romans 9, especially 21. Does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and others for common use? Well, sure he does. Sure he does. How in the world could Israel question the Father's eternal purpose? It's not just saying, hey, you should do this. Really, at the heart of that, he's questioning what God's eternal purpose is to bring many sons into glory in this age. So that is significant, I must say. So back to our notes. And we already remember our quest is to and what was God's answer to him? That's our quest. Point number two, this is the answer that he gives to Elijah who, who questioned God about uh, and we'll, we're going to get to the context, so no need to, to read it at this point. Let's just read it. It says, I have reserved for myself uh, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, <laughs> Baal obviously was a pagan god. And it was, he, Baal was it's a false god, obviously. Because there's really only one true God. All the rest are false. So if we go to 1 Kings, and we're going to, we have to read a little bit of the history. We've got to look at the context to see what went on. And it's pretty interesting context, I must say. So when you look at this, uh, let me go to it, stand by. So 1 Kings... 18. I want to go back to 18 because I only expect, if you haven't read this information, it might be good. It reads like a story. Um, I wouldn't read it in the King James Version, but it might be tough. But if you read it in NIV or ESV or something, uh, it, I think it reads like a pretty good story. But I want to go back and help to just make sure we clarify what was going on in Elijah's mind to ask this question. And uh, so just again, the question was, uh, let's start from the beginning where he asks, here it is. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham and from the tribe of Benjamin. And, and then... Um, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Do, do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Isaiah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and have torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. So, in other words, the sky is falling. And we covered this last week, or we tried to anyway, uh, just to get some understanding of what was happening. But we need a little bit more, I think, just to because God does give the answer to Isaiah, uh, Elijah. So we're going to make sure we follow through with the context. So <laughs> whether we read this whole thing or not, <coughs> and, and I know I probably could have just read it all the time I'm taking with the, the prerequisites here, but 
I'm going to 18, and we're going to skim through 1 Kings chapter 18, just to know if you haven't heard the story of how Elijah uh, had this showdown on Mount Carmel, and how he defeated all of the pagan priests and prophets, uh, supposedly, supposedly, how, uh, you know, I'm going to just, um, let's see where we should start. Yeah, let's, let's start around verse 20, 1820. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. This is what we were just talking about. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one, remember this part here, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, because they have been killing prophets, they have been doing a lot of damage. Right? But Baal has 450 prophets. So get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose. Now this is the showdown. God is working through Elijah to on Mount Carmel. And we don't have to go through the whole thing, but I'm going to try to read enough for you to get the, the gist of it. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it in two pieces and put it on the wood, but, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Okay, we're going to let this go down just like that. We're going to see. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. <clears throat> then they called on the name of Baal. Uh, from morning till noon, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they, made, they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is in deep thought or busy traveling. Maybe he is sleeping or must be awakened. So, so they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, uh, as was their custom until the blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one from, for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, of whom the, Lord, uh, the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. Right? Well, we know Israel came from Jacob. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sheaves of seed. Yeah, I might say that. Might have said that wrong. But he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood, and then he said to them, "Fill your large jars with water and pour it on, uh, on the offering and on the wood. Do it again," he said. 
and they did it again. Do it a third time. He ordered them, and they did it a third time. So the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And at the time of the sacrifice, prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and and have done all these things at your command. Notice all of this is not something Elijah came up with. This is something he was ordered to do by God and, and did. He followed God's word. 1837. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up all the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then, this is a high moment, you would imagine. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. <clears throat> Don't let anyone get away. Then they seized them, and Elijah and Elijah had brought, had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. Whew. Brutal. So then there was this drought, right? And there was no rain. So this last part is about the rain coming. So I want to move on to chapter 19. So chapter 19 gives us some understanding of the context, more of the context of what, so just know, part of it, Paul doesn't quote the whole context, but it's good for you to know it, so you can know what happened. So verse 19, 1, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and Jezebel was Ahab's wife. He shouldn't have married her, but she was a Gentile, but he did anyway, and she was very influential over Ahab. So he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. If, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that, like, like that of one of them, uh, right, and this is this is a judgment that Jezebel is speaking over Elijah. She said, "May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one, like that of one of them." In other words, the ones you slaughtered, uh, Elijah, you're going down, is what she's saying. So, what happens in verse three? Elijah was afraid and ran. For his life. Now here's this man who just called down fire from the presence of all of these false prophets and these people on Mount Carmel. And what does he do in the face of Jezebel? He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. It reminds me of what we read about Jonah. Verse 5, Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. At once an angel, an angel 
touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank, strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb the mountain of God. So this is all in the context. I just want to give you an idea of what happened. And it reminds me of uh, Jonah running from the Lord when the Lord told him to go to Nineveh. He went the opposite direction. So let's continue. Verse 9. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, this is important. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Huh. That's some testimony. Right? He's the I'm very, I'm the one doing all the right things. I, there's no one like me. I'm the only one left. Everybody else is dead. This is his, his view, right? The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. So all this cataclysmic, th these things are happening. And uh, Elijah's standing there just probably holding on for dear life, right? After the earthquake, verse 12, came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, the same voice he heard earlier, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me too. So quite interesting. Uh, we're going to see what the Lord says to him, but uh, notice we're, we're getting to the answer here. But notice his refrain two times. He's like, I'm the one. I, I'm the only one. There's nobody else. I'm, everything's gone. They broke your covenant. Everything. The prophets are dead. I am the only one left. He is at his wit's end here. So, but his assumptions, his misconceptions, you can already see, right? So let's continue. So we'll get to the answer and so we can uh, sort of get, get through this. So the, uh, verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. <clears throat> when you get there, anoint Haziel, king of, over a realm, also anoint Jehu, son of Nishma, Nish, Nimshi. Oh boy, I have a rough time with these words. 
king over Israel and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meloam to succeed you as prophet, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword. Haziel and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet, here it is, the answer that Paul grabs. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, have not uh, paid a homage to uh, this false god. And so then he goes out and he calls Elijah as his first task. He, he does that. But you know, in all of this, his answer, I have, I have reserved for myself 7,000. Then he, 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 he says all of this to say, listen, you're pushing the panic button for no reason. There's a lack of trust in God's plan for you, Elijah. You don't realize, but I'm telling you what to do. I'm telling you where to go. None of this, these events that after Mount Carmel needed to happen. But God saw that they would happen. And he had that as a part of his plan. He saw Elijah's lack of faith. He saw Elijah's his confidence that he had in himself. All of that was true. I'm hearing some background noise. Um, you may want to put your phone on mute. I can do it if necessary. Stand by. So, back to our notes here. So, this is important in our the way we understand this. And I took a long time to read this because I think if Paul is giving us this example, we should know it. We should know what happened. What was the story? There's a lot of object lessons here that we could but we could um, refer to, but I can see what Paul's object lesson for us in Romans is. And that's what we want to try to bring to the, to the table. Point, point B in our notes, 2B. What made Elijah's troubles such a dilemma for him was his misconceptions, especially 1 Kings 19, 10, and 14. So 10 and 14, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, and he goes into this. And then the same thing, he says the same exact thing in verse 14. I have, I have been very zealous for the Lord uh, God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, etc., those are misconceptions. The information that he had was incorrect. And yet, uh, his, he was confidently saying this. It wasn't like he said, I think I'm the only one. No, he's saying, I know that's it. I'm done. All the prophets are dead. I'm the last one. And guess what? They're trying to kill me as well. So in that, those were misconceptions. He thought he was by himself, and God is saying to him, no, that's not the case. Not at all. First, here's what I want you to do, and not only that, just, just for your information, there are 7,000 people that I have that are dedicated to me that have never bowed the knee to Baal. So that, to me, is interesting as I think about it. We could have <clears throat> wrong 
assumptions. We could have misconceptions about what God's plan is. And when we get to those misconceptions, when, when we pass the limits of our understanding, then we're in no man's land because we're not following, we're not trusting God anymore. So then we can be just like Elijah, pushing the panic button when it comes to our lives, you know, what we should be doing and running and fear and on, on and on. So that was the biggest part of Elijah's problem was his misconceptions. So point C, Elijah's assumptions were wrong. Let's just say it. And it's almost like what Peter and the apostles had when Christ asked the question, who do men say that I am? And some said this and some say that. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ said, wow, that's God the Father must reveal that to you, Peter. But then Christ said, well, since you got that information, let me go on and tell you the plan. Well, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be beaten and killed. And then I'll be raised, be raised on the third day. And so all this is in Matthew 16. So, and he rebukes, Peter rebukes the Lord for saying that. And this is the plan. Now, just imagine if we had the history in the Bible where Christ did not go to the cross. He did not fulfill all righteousness. He did not die for the sins of the world. Peter said, no, those things will never happen. So on the one hand, he was telling people what the gospel was. On the other hand, he was saying that the gospel cannot absolutely be true. So Jesus' answer to him was, get behind me, Satan. You have in your heart the things of men and not the things of God. So Peter's response was correct, but it was the right words. But what was in Peter's heart was a, was, were misconceptions and assumptions about who the Messiah was and what he would do. Those are important factors. So people can say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, we have to say, what Jesus? And what, what do you believe about him? Because it is important not just to say in name only. It's not Salvation is not whosoever shall say the magic words. But it is the understanding of it all. Elijah did not understand the plan of God. He did not. He was like, well, Israel's gone, God, and you, you, you failed. It's over. You failed. All of this for nothing, because it's about ready to all fold in, and, and nothing. You're not going to get anything out of this. After that big display of what God had said to, you know, where he demonstrated through Elijah the power of God that Elijah was synced to, that thought that, oh, it's over. They have torn down the altars. Je Jezebel is trying to kill me. It's, it's really that bad. And it wasn't. These were mis assumptions that were wrong, misconceptions, and yet that happens. So I, this is point C again. Elijah's assumptions were wrong. God had not abandoned his people, which he foreknew. And that's basically what we read in verse 2. When has did God reject his people? Is Paul's posing that question? Did God reject his people, which he foreknew? And no, he didn't. 
Paul says, no, I'm an Israelite and I'm saved. I'm in the church. I'm, he didn't reject Israel. I'm, I'm part of the church. That's Romans 11, 2. So um, this is verse 11, 2. Let me go back to Romans. I know it's right there in the context. So 11, 1. No, actually, that's 11, 1. Yeah. It's where Paul, I figured, he says, by no means, I myself, I am an Israelite myself and a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He's given you the fact that no, God didn't reject Jewish people. No, he didn't reject them. Absolutely not. Otherwise, I couldn't be saved if God rejects his people. Not So, so this is something... Israel was decrying to say that um, that uh, God had failed in some regard because he had switched from, uh, he put Israel on hold and he's now calling out many sons in the glory. He, they're saying, no, you can't do that, God. God said, yeah, I can do that. I've been planning this from before time began. So it's certainly something I can do. So that's point C. Point D, 2D, is we can have the same feeling of hopelessness if we look around and make assumptions like Elijah did when it comes to the revelation of the mystery. Now just think about this. And we have done this many times. And I've had the question, um, Have you? do you know other people that have the same understanding that we have about the mystery? So it's a legitimate question. I think it's a valid question, but uh, we are assuming that because we don't know anybody that teaches the mystery, and when I say the mystery, it's right here in the scriptures, right? It's, it's very apparent. It's, it's there. It's, we, the scriptures are not hidden like you had a, like that little thing in, in the iPhone where you can send it and it comes across all fuzzy, and the person has to sort of swipe their fingers over it to reveal it. No, that's not how it is in the Bible. It is directly right there in Scripture, and yet, for some reason, people are not seeing it. it, is, it, it these things can only be revealed by means of the Spirit. We do know that, but the words should intrigue you just by themselves, I would think. So, and maybe that's not fair to say, because I didn't always see this under, you know, I read the Bible, read right over these scriptures and didn't make, make any heads or tails of them. So that's maybe not so. It takes God the Holy Spirit. But are there others out there? We could say, well, because we don't know anybody, then we can make assumptions like Elijah did, and we would be wrong. God could have this. So I would say that the same answer is for us too. I have 7,000 who understand my plan, who, have, who see my... There's probably more than 7,000. I'm just using some term to say that God is going to answer us if we ask that question. He says, I got people who do understand it. Yeah, you may not know them, like, I, I, Elijah didn't know who those 7,000 were. He thought he was the only one left. But that wasn't so. That wasn't so at all. And so, I would say the answer to us is that. So, point number three. Let's look at it. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant 
chosen by grace. So too, let's go into a point A, even now in this manner and thus or so. This is a connective word here. And this word is to say, yeah, right now, that's how it is. And he's answering this question to those first century Jews, right? This is point B at the present time, right? Just This is current. And right now, so too, at the present time, as God answered Elijah in 1 Kings 19.18, the Apostle Paul brings that answer forward to the Jews of his day and to us as well. And if we read Romans 8.35-39, through 39, which we have read, I just want to read it again, because remember, um, we came from this place where, who was he, who, what should we say, verse 31, what, should, what then shall we say in response to these things? And this is for God calling the church. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, we know who's against us. In 11, we're going to see that as far as the gospel is concerned, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sakes, right? Uh, then it says, verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And then he gives reasoning for us. And then verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, why would he even ask those questions? It's because Israel wanted to separate us from this plan. They, God, this is wrong. You can't do this. And we are calling foul on this. We're bringing a charge. Right? We, we have something to say in response to this. So, um, so verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword? None of those things are able to do it. As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, bring it. If, if we have to die for the Lord, so be it. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If we're absent from the body, what's going to happen? We're going to be present with the Lord. So no matter whether we're here in the world or we're present with the Lord, we are going to serve the Lord in this age and be part of this age as God planned. There's nothing anybody can do about it, not the Jews, not Israel, not Satan, not anybody, can somehow change the course of God the Father's eternal purpose. Verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor an neither angels nor demons, neither the present or nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, I like the phrase, nothing present nor the future, nothing that can ever happen, no power can take us out of Christ. That's literally what is being said here. Who can separate us from the love of Christ, from the plan? The love of Christ is the Father's plan to bring many sons into glory, and that those sons will be conformed to the image of his son, and that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's verse 29. So what could separate us from that? Nothing. Nothing 
no power, no nothing above you, how high you look up, no matter how far down, nor anything else. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have competence. So yeah, I mean, not to say that we won't die for the Lord, or that we won't be martyred, or that we won't have suffering in this world, or not to say that none of those things are uh, could happen. They could happen, but even in those things, what we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So we are here as witnesses. We'll be here as long as God the Father will have us in the world. Right? This is this is part of their plan. So point point C in our notes, there is a remnant, right? So this is part of it, right? This is part of the phrase. Uh, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There is a remnant. Let's look at that. If God were to destroy Israel, how would he fulfill his promises and keep his word? Now, he promised. He made specific promises to Israel. He cannot go back on his word. And people say, yeah, he does. There's replacement theology which says, yeah, the church really, uh, those promises in the Old Testament, don't worry about them. The church fulfills all those promises. Not so. Church has a different purpose, completely. The church is not Israel, spiritual or otherwise, at all. If anything, the only connection that we have with Israel or Jews is that God takes from Jews to bring them into the body of Christ. Right? Jews have an opportunity to, they're invited, as we're going to see later. But uh, So this is important. I want to read these verses, Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37. I just want to make sure we understand what the Jews saw as well. Jeremiah 31, this is right after the New Covenant, 35 through 37, goes like this. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that the waves, its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. Now they have done some terrible things. Terrible. But God is saying clearly he will never reject Israel. This is impossible. It won't, if, for God to keep his word, he must have a future for Israel. Now, what happens? Now, even when it says that Israel will not be a nation, what's going on right now is something that God called us to before time began. So it is as if Israel's prophecy clock stopped, and then they will not pick up again until after the rapture. God will then continue to work with Israel. He will have a witness of the nation. And we already saw that in Revelation chapter 7, where he calls Israel 
back into existence after this hiatus, right? Because this is, we could say it's a hiatus, but really, time really has stopped. And when we say time has stopped, that we're talking about the prophecy clock. So Israel, even like if you go back to Daniel, where he says 70 weeks are determined into your people and to the end of the age and so forth and all that. This is in Daniel, talking about the 70 weeks of Daniel. This is Daniel chapter 9 where God gave the timetable of when the Messiah would come, the work he would do, and the end, the very end. Well, it happened just like that, except God stopped the prophecy clock, and he inserted the mystery. And the mystery is what we're doing now. It started at Pentecost, and it will continue until God calls the church and unites the church. Uh, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. He continues along with the same prophecy clock. So so it is as, as if um, time stopped while God is doing uh, this special purpose, what we call calling out many sons into glory. So that's what's going on. And Revelation twelve seventeen talks about there will be a remnant, right, that is left from the woman, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. This is Revelation 12, 17. There's, a, there's that remnant that we've talked about. God does not destroy Israel. And in the judgments in the past, as we already read from Romans 9 and 10, we saw that there would be judgments, but in each case there is a remnant. And God does not completely destroy Israel. In when it comes to discipline. So there is a remnant when it comes to, and Israel does have a future. And God will fulfill all the promises he's ever said to them uh, and, and, and does not miss a beat. Point D, so chosen by grace. So two, there is, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And to say the remnant here that Paul is referring to, refers to Jews in this unique age who believe in Christ. And this is where I gave 11, Romans 11, 1, where Paul says, I too, myself, am an Israelite, tribe of Benjamin, all that. And what happened to Paul? He, he realized not only was he called to be a Jew, but he was also called in the church in this unique age. So that's what Ephesians 1, 4, Paul writes that. He says, for he chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. So Paul is really chosen, he was chosen to be in Israel, but once he, God chose him also to be in the church. So when he's talking about there's a remnant chosen by grace, he's talking about that there's Jews who were called to be Jews, but now they're also called to be in the church. Because in the church, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So, but once they become, they come into the church, they are baptized into the body of Christ, where there is no Jew, and there is no Gentile. It's a special calling. So Paul was a Jew; that was his heritage prior to coming into the church. But then he was called to be in the church. He's saying, in point E, that Jews are invited to be part of this new age. That, that is the case with its unique purpose. And we already, if we look at this in Ephesians, let's go to it. 
I know I said, what time is it? I know I said we're going to make sure we save some time for Q&A. But I'm going to look at this. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. Here it is. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, and that's Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. This is where Christ died. He set the, all this aside. His purpose was to create in himself, in Christ, that is, one new humanity, or really man, out of the two, thus making peace. Peace between the two groups that have such trouble, right? This is, this is uh, the plan. This is part of the plan. And in this, in one body, verse 16, to reconcile both of them, these two groups, to God through the cross. The Jews have to come through the cross just like Gentiles. They don't have any special privilege or where God has, you know, given them some olive branch to say, come on, since your, your heritage is Jewish. No, they are both reconciled through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That's how he... He put to death, not only nailed the law to the cross. That's what we see in Colossians 2. Uh, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Those who are far away, Gentile uh, culture. Those who were, had that Gentile, came from the Gentile culture. Those who were near, Jewish culture. Near does not mean they were saved. It means they had a covenant. So in that, the Jews were invited. This is what Paul is saying. Don't think you've been left out. There's, there's, no. There's, not only will the Jews be restored after the you know, in the tribulation, after the church age is over, all Israel will be saved. We didn't get to that verse in Romans 11 yet, but it's coming. All Israel will be saved. And that's, that's their heritage. This is not something that Israel will have to go back and say, well... God's plan failed for us. No, God's plan continues. Right, so that was point E. They're a part of this unique age and purpose. Point F is our last point here. We're chosen by grace again. None of us can plan our calling and destiny, but God can and did. In Romans 8, 29, that's what it says. He planned that, right? So I'm just going to read Romans 8, 29. I think I quoted it already. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Just like we read in Ephesians 2, right? <clears throat> that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's what's going on in this age. You couldn't decide that, that, that for yourself. You had to be chosen to be in this age. Like it says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. This, has, this is not to do with your salvation. This has to do with God selecting you to be in this particular age. So, this information hopefully is helpful as we um, have gone through all the, the question of Elijah, Paul's example, all of that to show us about what the Jews' current uh, problems and objections to God the Father's eternal plan. And Paul is, is helping us understand how that all works out. So at this point, uh, we're going to pause.
and see if there are any questions or thoughts uh, about anything we covered or about anything. We're going to open the floor for some Q&A. The floor is now open. You know, I got I got a little disturbance right there when you were getting ready to uh, speak about um, God's answer to the the seven thousand. I'm not sure if you ever. Uh, so the question was, who was the seven thousand? Did you ever answer that? Oh uh, no, he God doesn't answer that. So he just tells him that there are seven thousand that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And um, oh, go ahead. So would the 7,000 be 7,000 Israelites, um, 7,000 priests, or like what category of 7,000 you think he might be referring to? Uh, he, he, I wouldn't say that. He doesn't say they are prophets. He doesn't say they are priests, uh, even though there are prophets in the context of prophets being killed. But he doesn't go through that and say there are prophets. He just says that there are 7,000. But now, Elijah was a prophet, if you wanted to think about it that way. And if he's saying he's the only one left, maybe what God is trying to tell him, no, there are 7,000 more prophets that I have. Uh, so prophets are not only those who can tell what the future is, and but they also proclaim the word of God. They can prophesy. Prophesy in the Old Testament was very much the same like we would have it in the New Testament. Not only do, is it given to help Israel uh, to understand the direction they need to go and to call out when they don't go in the right direction, it was also proclaiming the word of God as well. So prophets, uh, there were but, you know, Je Jezebel and Ahab were, were, were killing the prophets, and that was so. I, Elijah wasn't telling, uh, telling us the wrong thing. That, oh, no, you're not killing the prophets. No, they were killing the prophets. And if you read, Jesus says Israel killed the prophets, right? This is something, Israel, this, you would think, God's own nation killing prophets. Right? This is abhorrent to think about. But yes, that is what went on. Now, I'm not saying that I know who the identity of these 7,000 were. But very likely they could have been prophets. Or they just could have been people who um, were devoted to God. So, uh, I don't know for sure. What, do you have a thought about that? Well, my own thought would be... So the 7,000 were just in the earth or not in the vicinity that he was in, obviously, um, did you say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, Elijah was ignorant about this, these 7,000. For him to make the statements that he made means that he doesn't have all the information. He thinks he does. And from his vantage point, from his perspective, yeah, he's the only one left. The whole thing is falling. The sky is falling. But from God's perspective, no, no, the sky is not falling. In fact, God just showed up mightily on Mount Carmel. And I would think that Elijah should have been more trusting of God, especially since 
of what just happened. You know, the fact that it, Jezebel was now going to kill him, or at least that was her vow. That shouldn't have. I mean, the power of God. It just happened right before his eyes. But that's how fickle, I would say, we are often when it comes to um, the things of God. And look at it. And I gave the example of Peter. On the one hand, he said this, and the next hand, he was rebuking Jesus, <laughs> rebuking the Lord. But that that is what happened. Yeah, I would, I would also say that 7,000, when you think about the population of the earth, or, or even, you know, all the, the Israelites that they were, because a lot came out of Egypt, um, I would assume that he's referring to maybe prophets or something, but 7,000 is not, not a lot. Well, yeah, when you think about it, population. it wasn't a lot, but but Israel had suffered many... Uh, bouts of discipline in the past. And uh, for instance, uh, Israel was com almost completely wiped out by God. And we read that with, when we studied Hosea, where uh, God almost completely wiped out Israel. But only a, a remnant, it says, a small number of people, it doesn't say how many, but a remnant fled to Jerusalem. And that remnant, God continued to uh, prosper, and and they were prolific, and they continued to repopulate. But <laughs> the, the the discipline that Israel received was uh, painful. Uh, they lost a lot of people from time to time because of their disobedience. And um, even if you look at what happened under Titus on, in AD seventy, tremendous loss of life. Tremendous loss of life in Israel, but they they're going to recover all of that. And eventually in the tribulation, we saw, what do we see? That same number, 7,000 from each tribe, 7,000 from this tribe. And this is Revelation chapter 7, 7,000, that number we see again. It's the same number God said he had reserved for himself that wouldn't had not compromised their faith, their trust in God. I'll pause, Bill. I'm good. No, those are great, great thoughts. Other thoughts out there? How you doing? How you doing? Hey, Dave. I was um, studying, uh, I was studying like, you know, book of Luke, chapter 13, verse 11 to the end, I think. I also was studying also Matthew chapter 12. But in Luke, Christ uh, was doing a lot of miracles, and the Pharisees of them, they actually condemned Christ for doing that because they said he was doing things on the Sabbath. And Christ was telling them, well, you hypocrites. You call them hypocrites because he was saying, don't you, don't you want your oxen the same thing? So why can't I, you know, why could he shoot his woman who was bent over, and he told us that your sins are forgiven, and she straightened up, and she got up and prayed, prayed, prayed God. Now, she was praying to God, but the first is they would be thinking Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so those there's some really odd things when you come to 
what they thought the letter of the law was and, and what Christ saw as the spiritual uh, understanding, uh, the understanding that the Spirit gave to the Scriptures. And part of... Right, because it was also condemning hell, and it was there, he cast out these, the Spirit by Beelzebub. He was saying, wait a minute, you know. That's right. Yeah. Um, all, he, 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 um, he cannot stand against himself if he cast out by his own power, you know. So they were just, they were just hate, hating Christ, you know. Well, yeah, the hatred was not even understood by them. Remember, they hated him without a cause. They hated him because right. he was the next. He's going to be the next ruler of the world. So the world hates him, and this is personified in that statement because really it's Satan who is the the prince of this world, uh, the ruler, the current ruler of this world who sees Christ superseding him and hates him. And he does everything he can, not only to put obstacles in the way of Christ, but to try to stop him from fulfilling his mission in the world. So, the hatred... Right, and also, in and, and Matthew chapter 5, there's almost something similar to that, and he cast out this person, uh, I, don't know, I guess it was a woman, I'm sorry, I, I, can't, I can't really understand, you know, I can't see my Bible. And this person couldn't even, this person couldn't even speak. And this person was also lame also. And they also accused Christ of casting out demon by the prince of demons. This is what they said, yeah. Yeah, that, so yeah, that, through and through, they, they to his face said, that he was a demon. They said that he was doing works, the, the miracles. They weren't denying that there were miracles, signs, and wonders, but they were saying that, yeah, but the power that he's using is the power of the devil. And Christ made points. How the devil's going to cast out the devil? How does that work? Uh, interesting when you have Nicodemus who, sa who saw the same works and said, uh, we know that you come from God because no one can do the things you are doing except God is with him. It's interesting when you hear the um, Pharisees, those who were against him, come up with other uh, reasons why he did these miracles. But I take that as positive because they did see the miracles that Christ was performing day in, day out. For years he did this. He emptied, today that would be like, he's if he's coming to your region and all the hospitals in that whole area empty out and, and bring their people on stretchers and in ambulances and all that to, to, for Christ. And it says in Mark, he healed them all. So it was undeniable. It's not like, well, this person had a backache and this person had a headache. No, it says he healed all manner of sickness and disease. Everybody that came into contact with him. So this is not like what you hear today with people. Say, oh, I got miracles and healing. No, this was unprecedented. Don't even compare what goes on today with what Christ did. And at least what people say that is going on with what Christ did. Now, I'm not saying that God can heal today. He can. But that type of miraculous healing, 
cannot be compared with anything that's happening today. It was truly something. Just read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. That's all. And uh, don't let it, don't hear it from me, hear it from what the scripture says. I will pause. Other thoughts out there? Thanks, Dave. So just a quick question. I, I'm assuming it's quick. Um, so when Isaiah was talking about the 450 prophets of Baal, um, I think we're still talking about the context of Israelites. Correct? Yeah. But these were Israelites that had turned their backs to God. Absolutely. Again, we have a crisis in Israel where uh, they are led astray by false doctrine. Uh, the influence, and like I said, they're supposed to be an influence to the other nations. What happens? The other nations have become an influence to them. The, almost the reverse of what they should have been was happening yeah so that was elijah i know you said isaiah but i know you meant to say elijah i did <laughs> no worries i if you want to catch all of the mis uh, quotes that i do you could certainly do it i don't mind for the record i just want want to be you know say it correctly and i know i've certainly tripped over uh many many things as well but yes, <clears throat> yeah, that, that is um, another crisis in Israel. Uh, but you saw the showdown. And God, Elijah said, if, if God be God, then, you know, then if not, let's see, let's see. Let's let this showdown happen. And sure enough, God showed up and he performed. And even that, not only is the one he performed it through, did he buckle under the pressure of Jezebel and Ahab? But um, all the people who also bowed down to him as well. So, to God, rather. So, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, but yet, that's how fickle we are. We are vacillating when it comes to God, often. You should probably know this in your own life. I shouldn't have to tell you this. I think you already know this. <laughs> this is it's part of the growth that we have. Let's just hope the trajectory of your growth is up and not down. Let's just hope. But we know that it's a, failure is a part of success. So we should humbly admit that. Other thoughts before we close? All right, we're just going to button it up. Thank you all for the questions and thoughts. We, we're going to just close this out, but thank you, thank you, Father. We are privileged uh, that we are in this particular age where you're calling out those many sons into glory. Father, we, we thank you for this church, those who have taken time out of their busy schedules to hear you, Father. And we pray that the message is clear and that others can come and, and to understand your will and your plan according to what uh, we do here at Word is Truth. We thank you so much for your grace and that we pray that you will continue to challenge us as we continue to grow in the knowledge and wisdom 
that you have given us in this age. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.